Indeed you are, O God, you are altogether lovely to us. We are people whose eyes have been opened by sovereign grace, and we can now look upon you in a way that we never saw you before. You are not simply there to judge us and to police our lives. You are a God who has extended mercy and grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, you have become lovely to us because you found a way to save a sinner such as myself. That way exposed and revealed in the life and ministry and death of Jesus Christ. The one who lived the life that I should have lived and then went on to die the death that I should have died. And as a result of that accomplished work, offers me the free gift of eternal life. And by grace, O God, we have taken it. And so, indeed, you are to us altogether lovely, altogether wonderful. And we glory in the plan of salvation and yield to it with great gladness. Our Father, uh, we are a, a people that have been brought out of a world that is just in love with sin. We know what that means, Lord. We were too and, and still are in so many ways. And yet, Lord, there are things that are happening around our world that absolutely boggle our minds. How, um, how the hopelessness of this culture is beginning to express itself and, and show up in various ways. Oh, God, might Grace Evan be a part of a solution? There are so many great churches in this city, Father. Might all of us unite to broadcast a message of hope. Hope to be found in Christ Jesus, but hope to be found in only Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you will make us faithful to that message, that you'll make us sacrificial givers to that cause that we will be energetic doers in the midst of advancing that kingdom. Oh, God, cause us to see that there's only one life that we've got now, and one day we will regret not having used it differently. So, Father, here we are. We want to reconsecrate ourselves. We want to recommit ourselves to kingdom living. Show us where you would have us do kingdom work, oh, God, and then empower us by the Holy Spirit to do it. Father, for people who bring aches and pains in here, not just because they have an ingrown toenail, but because their hearts ache, their marriages are bruised, their families are, are in trouble, their health is deteriorating, might there be glad words of encouragement and hope as we are gathered together as the people of God. Now, Lord, take our money. It really isn't ours. It is something that you gave us to steward. Some of us you gave a lot. Some of us you didn't give quite as much. But we're all stewards. We're all supposed to be handling the stuff that you gave us in a way that will bring you glory. Might our giving today reflect the fact that we know that we are stewards. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you. Now take your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 18. And I want to read you a familiar story, a perplexing story, but a familiar one nonetheless. So you follow as I read, beginning at verse 16 of Genesis 18. And we'll read through the end of the chapter. 
Genesis 18 at verse 16. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And Abram came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abram answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Indeed now, I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. But once more, suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. The last time that we were together over the life of uh, Abraham, which was uh, March the 13th, so that was three weeks ago. Um, three weeks ago, while we were studying the life of Abraham, I introduced you to a word that might have been new to some of you. Maybe not, but it was the word Christophany. It's found in uh, chapter 16, verse 7. And a Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. That is, before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he appeared in what's known as a Christophany. Uh, He appears in chapter 16, verse 7. Well, the reason I tell you that is because in this story that I just read you, there is another appearance, but it's not of the second person of the Trinity. It's of the first person of the Trinity. That's called a theophany. When the second person of the Trinity shows up, it's called a Christophany. When the first person of the Trinity shows up, it's called a theophany. And that's what you have here. Abraham, and, and it's really easy to prove, I mean, or demonstrate, guys. It's, it's, um, it's all through the text where he, the Lord said this, the Lord said that, and, and um, um, Abraham stands alone with the Lord, and, and all that business. Uh, it's very apparent that what you've got here is, a, is a, an appearance of the first person of the Trinity. 
Again, the reason I tell you that is not so that I can stuff your little brains with more Bible trivia. But you, you got to know that in terms of how you understand this text. Uh, that little insight, that fact, is going to influence everything that you understand about this little story that we've just read that, that I think is familiar to you. Um, several of the commentaries that, that I read in preparation for this treat this story as an instance of prayer. And what they do with it is they say, here you have a man, Abraham, the praying man. He is, he is persistent in prayer, just like you see Jesus teaching in Luke 18 in the New Testament. He's a man that's persistent in his prayer life. Well, gang, certainly there are things that you could learn um, about prayer from this, this story. But I want to suggest to you that this event is not about prayer. It's about mediation. If I were going to label Abraham something here, I wouldn't call him a prayer. I would call him a mediator. <laughs> Gang, um, what you see going on here is a, a mediation, whereas Abraham has come to seek to reconcile a guilty people with an offended God. That's what's going on here. That's what mediators do. Mediators are moved by the news of coming judgment. Mediators wonder, is there, is there anything that I can do to stem the judgment? That's what mediators do. And that's what you find Abraham doing here. And he's doing it in a very inadequate, uh, limited way. But he is playing the role of a mediator as he pleads with God about the destruction of the wicked. Now, having said that, that's a little bit wrong, because his real concern is not the destruction of the wicked. It's not as if Abraham has a problem with God's judgment. That's not his major concern. You can see his major concern in verses 23 and 25. Look at, look at verse 23. He says, this is, this is what's con- what he's up to. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Abraham's not, he doesn't have issues over God's judgment. His concern is, you're not gonna, excuse me, you're not gonna, you're not gonna include, I mean, in, in that judgment, you're not gonna, you're not gonna sweep up the righteous with that, are you? I mean, um, as you, uh, I mean, in this impending catastrophe, this judgment that is about to be poured out on them. You're not going to include the righteous in that, are you? I mean, you, you, surely you, you're not going to do that, are you? I mean, um, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham is moved by the possibility of the righteous perishing alongside the unrighteous. He's in essence... Pleading on the behalf of the righteous, which is what mediators do. That's what a mediator is for, gang. He's um, granted he doesn't mediate perfectly, and he's not particularly clear about what makes somebody righteous. But his major concern is the righteous being swept up in all of this judgment that is about to be poured out. But now, gang, listen to me. At the same time. At the same time of his concern over the righteous being caught up with the wicked, Abraham is engaged in a piece of theological investigation. 
What you have here, ladies and gentlemen, is an inquiry on the part of Abraham. Abraham is trying to understand something about God's ways. And the longer this conversation goes between Abraham and God, the more excited it appears he becomes. Uh, you know, explaining that theological investigation is the key to this text. If you can stay with me for about five minutes, this text is going to leap out at you. If you can understand the, the inquiry that is in the back of the Abraham's head as he engages us in this conversation, ladies and gentlemen, this thing will grow awfully, awfully, awfully sweet for you. You know, I don't know about the rest of you, but this text has always puzzled me. You know, I, I've, it, it always reminded me of, of, you know, my wife over in a flea market in, in, in Budapest. And haggling with those people over a piece of pottery at the flea market. You know, she'd walk up to these little booths at this flea market and she'd, she'd find a, a, um, a Limoges box. And she loves Limoges boxes. Uh, she loves Heron China. You know, Heron China is Hungarian. Did you know that? Heron, that's pretty nice stuff. Well, you know, she would find some of that stuff and she'd pick it up and she'd look at it and she'd say to the lady, um, how much you want for this? Then the lady would say, um, 3,000 forints. Susie would say, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, how about 1,000 forints? And the lady would say, oh, 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 you Americans, you're all alike. I have a family to feed. What do you want? I'm going to starve. What's the matter with you? I can't take 3,000. How about 1,200 forints? No, 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 1,000 forints. Oh, I'm never going to make it. You're going to put me out of business. And, and when it was all over, you know, it was somewhere around 1,000 forints. But that's what this has always reminded me of. A piece of Old Testament haggling. How about 50? No, no, not 50. 40? How about 30? How you got 20? What do you say? What do you have? You know, and that's what, I mean, I've always walked away from this text thinking, I don't know what this is about. And it was two German scholars, ladies and gentlemen, that, that, that explained this to me. One's uh, named by the name, a man's name by the, was named Gerhard von Rod and Herbert Leupold. And if you can understand this next piece, you're going to love this story. I'm telling you, you're going to love this story. If you have been confused by it like I have for so long, stay with me. Because what I'm about to do, gang, is I'm going to take you down a road that you've got to stay, you got to stay on. Abraham is probing. He's inquiring He's investigating. He's wondering. And you've got to understand what he's wondering so that you can see, you can taste the sweetness of this thing. Okay? Stay with me. This is not a side road. But it's going to sound like that. You're going to think, what's that have to do with Just stay with me. Trust me for a second. Gang, uh, think of it like this. In 21st century Germany, like if you went to Germany right now, and if you asked Germans, were they responsible for the Holocaust, what would they say? Well, those Germans would say, uh, well, absolutely not. We're not responsible for that because, uh, you know, uh, that was our grandfathers that did that. And, and when, when all these lawsuits have come up um, by the, the heirs of some Jews that were killed in the Holocaust, all these lawsuits... 
Germany is saying, we're not responsible for that. That was our grandparents. Now, if you understand that, you can get this. Folks, one of the issues that 21st century modern Western man has with Christianity, with doctrine, is over the doctrine of original sin. Now, gang, all evangelicals believe in original sin. All of us. Roman Catholics believe in original sin. Original sin basically says this, that because of the sin of Adam, the whole human race is guilty. And 21st century, particularly Americans, hate that idea. Gang, Americans are the most individualistic people who were ever born. You ever tried to herd a bunch of cats? That's what, that's what Americans are like. We, we, don't, we don't buy into this idea of corporate responsibility. Well, we believe in individualistic responsibility. I am responsible for me and only... I'm not responsible for anybody but myself. I don't know what my grandparents did in the Holocaust because I'm not concerned about that. I am only responsible for what I did. Gang, over here in America, we do the same thing. Tell me, tell me this. When I say reparation, what do you think? <laughs> when, 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 when the subject of the African-American world comes up that they are in line for reparation because of the sins of slavery, what do you say? You say, well, <laughs> that was 150 years ago. I know it was ugly. It was wrong. But I didn't have anything to do with that. I'm not responsible for that because I'm only responsible for my own sins. But ladies and gentlemen, here we go. No Old Testament Jew had any problem with what's known as corporate solidarity. Corporate responsibility. Can I give you an example? Do you know the story when Joshua led the armies of Israel over into the promised land? They defeat Jericho, and then the next battle is a disaster, and all of Israel is judged. Do you know why? One man, his name was Achan. This is Joshua chapter 7. Achan did a bad thing. And as a result of Achan's sin, all of Israel was rendered guilty. And when it came time to punish him, it wasn't only Achan that was stoned. His whole family and all of his animals and everybody that was associated with Achan was stoned. Because Old Testament Judaism understood something about corporate responsibility, corporate solidarity. Abraham accepts that notion of corporate responsibility without complaint. He knows that the whole city of Sodom is going to be held responsible 
for the guilt of a few or a guilt of many. The point is, the larger entity is rendered guilty by the sins of the few. Did you get that? The larger group, just like in the case of Adam and original sin, the larger group is made guilty, is rendered guilty because of the sin of one, Adam. Have you got that? Okay. In this story, my dear brother and sister in Christ, what Abraham is trying to find out What Abraham is investigating is this. Okay, God. I understand that principle about corporate solidarity. I understand that. I understand, like in the case of Adam, that one man's sin brings guilt to the entire group. I got it. I got it. I understand that, God. No problems there. One man's sin has brought guilt to the larger body. But God, here's my question. Could that principle possibly work in reverse? That is, God, could the unrighteous many be forgiven on the basis of the righteousness of the few? Would you, God, would you spare the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous? Could the righteousness of someone else, could that be transferable to the unrighteousness of another? God, you, you, you wouldn't let the righteous perish because of the wicked, would you? Okay then, God. Will you let the wicked live because of the righteous? In other words, God, is righteousness so valued by you that the righteousness of the few, could it possibly be That the righteousness of the few could become the basis of the forgiveness of the many. Oh God, I, 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 I have no problems, God, with this concept of corporate solidarity. I understand the principle and I, I'm right with you. But until now, we've only thought of that principle as having one direction. That is because of the wickedness of one, the larger group is rendered guilty. I want to know, God, can the larger group now be rendered righteous on the basis of the righteous few? I understand that this principle says that one man's sin rendered a lot of people guilty. God, I just want to know... Is there another direction to that principle? Does that principle go in another direction? That is, God, could the righteous few become the basis of the forgiveness of the guilty many? 
And, and, and as he wonders and, and engages in this inquiry, he begins to probe. And, and aware that he's walking on a, on a dangerous tightrope by reminding the judge of all the universe that he's got to be just, he starts with 50. And he works himself all the way down to 10, as you know. And at every stop, at every increment, he hears God answer And every time he hears God answer yes, it, it seems that he gets more and more excited. It's like every time he hears yes, there's a fuel that is added to his, his inquiry and his discovery process. And he concludes, I'm on to something here. My daddy taught me about Adam's sin and how Adam's sin meant that I was guilty. I, I, I was taught that. But nobody. Nobody that I ever know of has ever wondered what I'm wondering. Does the principle of corporate solidarity have another direction? If guilt to the whole comes from the sin of the one, could it possibly be that the righteousness of the few could be applied to the guilt of the many. And he gets down to ten, and he stops, and he walks away. Why? Why, Abraham? Why, why did you stop at ten? I, I don't know the answer to that, gang, but, but you've got to notice this. It was not God who stopped. It was Abraham who stopped. Abraham stopped asking before God stopped answering. Abraham stopped asking before God stopped giving. Abraham runs out of nerve before God runs out of mercy. Folks, what would have been God's answer? If Abraham had gone all the way down to one, God, God, could it possibly be true that you are willing to forgive the wickedness of the many on the basis of the righteousness of one? And on the authority of God's word, ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, the answer would be yes. Yes. Yes, I will forgive the unrighteousness of the many based on the righteousness of one. And all who are in corporate solidarity with that righteous one will find forgiveness on the basis of the righteousness of that one. What Abraham is asking, ladies and gentlemen, is basically, he, he wants to know if his only hope for forgiveness is his own record. 
And to that question, God responds, no. Your only hope is not your own record. Will God spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous? Yes. But where is the righteous one to be found? It was not in Sodom. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in Rome. It's, it's, it's not in Memphis. It's not, he's not at Gracie Van. The righteous one is found at Calvary. And he's impaled on a cross. And all who are found in union with him by faith, though they themselves be wicked, are forgiven on the basis of the righteousness of one. Gang, that's the point of the story. Now, let me try to leave you with a bit of an application and I'm done. I want to ask again, why is it that Abraham stopped at 10? I don't know. But I'm suggesting that perhaps the reason might have been that he was overcome. He was overcome by a message that seemed just too good to be true. Now think about that. Gang, the, the message that he walked away with, folks, do you understand that God is willing to redeem a city based on the righteousness of ten people? All you got to do is go out and find ten righteous. And Abraham is overcome that God would save a whole wicked city on the basis of ten righteous folks. Wow, what a God is that? But Abraham... I got some news for you, buddy. God saves a whole lot of Sodoms based on the righteousness, not of ten, but based on the righteousness of one. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that indeed is a gospel that is almost too good to be true. But indeed. It is true. God offers to wicked people like me redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation and eternal life all based on the righteousness of one. He is willing to restore me not based on my record based on the righteousness and the record of another. I'm saying that Abraham, in essence, couldn't imagine the wonder of a God who was willing to forgive on the basis of righteousness that ten people produced 
what would he have thought had I been able to tell him, Abraham, do you understand that God is willing to forgive based on the righteousness of one? And by the way, Abraham, those ten righteous people that you're looking for, give it up. Because you'll never find them among men. And so what God has done is he himself has taken on flesh to provide the righteousness that he himself requires. And on the basis of that, the undeserving become sons. I don't know about the rest of you. But I think what you find in Abraham is sheer delight in the face of such a glorious message. Grace excites. Grace produces a kind, and I, I can see Abraham heading back to his, his home, his place, it says, and he grabs his wife and all of his servants and he gets them into a, a tent and he says, let me tell you what I found out about God today. You know what I found out? God is willing to forgive a whole city on the basis of the righteousness of ten. And everybody in the tent breaks out into applause and somebody runs out of the tent flat and says, i got to go tell my neighbors about this. <laughs> I've never heard of such a God who is willing to forgive on the basis of the righteousness of ten people. Why? God will save a whole city if only we can find ten righteous. That shouldn't be so hard. Say to Abraham, give up your search because the righteous one has lived and died and resurrected. And our God is willing to consider me righteous based on his record. My dear friend, this story begs you to come to the Christ to which the story points. Abraham was a flawed mediator. But the one to whom Abraham points is a perfect mediator. Father, I do pray that you will use this somewhat puzzling story to remind us of the, the great provision of the gospel. That what you have done in Christ is mind-boggling. That were my only hope to be my record, I would be in horrible trouble. But you have provided a perfect record of a perfectly righteous one. And on the basis of what he has accomplished, I, by faith, can be joined in corporate solidarity to him. I can be found in union with Christ. Father, if you've led people here this morning who have not yet found that union, 
I pray that you will cause them to see the great beauty of this message, this gospel of ours. Do that for Jesus' sake. We ask it, of course, in his name. Amen.